I'll just have to say, I think Stephen gets more exciting walk-up music, you know. There's a little bit of sleepy song there, but that's okay, that's okay. Well, hey, I'm glad to be with you guys today and Sharon, and uh, I just want to start off by saying, can I just tell you how much I love this book? Can I just tell you how much this book really means to me? And, uh, and I do, I love this book. And the reason I love this book is because of the fact that this book has introduced me to a person. And that person is, has absolutely just changed my life. He's changed my trajectory. He's still changing my life, and he's altered my eternal destiny. And that person's name is Jesus. And so I love this book because of the path uh, that it illuminates, and that's the path of following Jesus. And today, and really throughout this series, what we're talking about is that very idea, that very journey of following Jesus. And so this is very central to the heart of who we are as a church and our our effort to make disciples of Jesus, those that follow in the very footsteps of Jesus. And so this series is called The Way. And uh, last week, Stephen set up this series for us, and we're diving uh, a little bit deeper into this idea of following the way of Jesus, of really allowing this book uh, to introduce us to a person, and that very person, if we would follow in his footsteps, can absolutely change and continues to change uh, the very course of our lives. And so that is the invitation. That's what we're really inviting uh, all of us uh, to explore this morning a little bit. Well, I remember uh, it was in college. It was with the University of Kentucky uh, in my days in college where um, I, I had kind of known this book or known about this book uh, much of my life, I'd grown up in the church. I was blessed to get the opportunity to, to be in a home where uh, this book was taught and this book was important and church was a central part of what we did. Um, and uh, so I knew of this book, but it wasn't really until college that I feel like uh, I lived and, and stepped into fully the way of Jesus, this, uh, this central figure that this book uh, shows us. And so uh, I remember in, in college, there was really kind of this wrestling that was going on in my life, and, and God was really stirring something up in my life in a new way of, of and illuminating that path of what it looks like to follow Jesus. And it was at that time when I was having this wrestling match with him over what I would do with my life, like what I would give my life to. And I continued to feel this uh, this really propensity, this pull toward ministry, but I just honestly, and still do often today, feel like kind of an imposter with that title. Like I just, I don't feel like I could live up to that title. Like I, I didn't really feel like that was, that was for me. And so God and I, we kind of had this back and forth. And of course, God's way stronger than me, and He won the the tug of war match, and uh, and here I am. And I feel glad to be here. Um, glad to get to do what I've been doing for the last ten plus years. And I, I still remember that very first church that I was a part of is in a little town uh, called Sadieville, Kentucky, and uh, I, I was just kind of trying to get started and kind of uh, trying to, to, to do what I thought pastors or youth pastors did. I was a youth pastor in that town, and so I, I basically at that point, I was like, well, kids like to have fun. We're going to have a party, and so we had a party at the park, very first event that I've ever had, and I was coming from this giant church, this very large church, and so Everything was really, really big, and so obviously my expectations were really big. Like, this is going to be like the bash of all bashes. It was pretty awesome, but it wasn't exactly what I had kind of predicted. But I will say that in that little town of Sunnyville, Kentucky, there was probably 20 teenagers, and I was the student pastor of that. And I'm talking about in the town, not just in the church. So that very first event, though, I had probably... 15 of the 20 kids in the entire town, it's a pretty good percentage, you know, uh, come to that event and party with us at the park, and we had a really good time. So I remember my first, you could call it a message, uh, it, although it, that was probably a bit generous of a, a term, uh, was 
me sitting at the top row of these bleachers in this park after we had kind of done a bunch of fun things and just sitting and looking at like 10 to 15 kids on the bottom rungs of the bleachers. And honestly, I just did the best that I could to really uh, present to them this understanding of what it looks like uh, to meet this person of Jesus and what it looks like to live a life um, just this life-altering kind of relationship with Jesus. And so I talked to them about that. I just shared my heart with them uh, about that because I wanted them to know. I told them about this personal God that was really telling each and every one of them. And I looked in every one of their eyes, and I wanted them to hear this message that those who seek God with all of their heart could find him. And I continue to just share with them through and, and hold up this book and say, listen, the thing that each one of you is looking for can be found right here in this book. The thing that I know that your heart needs the most and your soul is yearning for can be found in this book. The thing that you are looking for is in this book. And that was the simplicity of the message. And I think that the message is, is actually that simple in a lot of ways. And sometimes we overcomplicate it. But the simplicity of the fact that we can find what we're looking for in this book. And so I got done with that message. You know, there wasn't any applause or anything like that. It was just kind of a simple moment with some students, and I set the Bible down next to me, and I said, hey, guys, here's what we're going to do. I got a little game for us to play here as we're finishing up. It's been a great time. And uh, so I'll tell you what. I got a $50 gift card, and at that time, that was like something really exciting. You know, students now probably like, eh, you know, okay. But they were like pumped. They're like, $50 gift card, all right. Like, I'm like, all you got to do is find it. It's somewhere hidden out in this park, you know, and so here we are in rural Kentucky out in this park, and they're like, I'm like, all right, ready, set, go, and they just like, they're tearing the park apart, looking for this gift card, like high and low, out on the, like, and I kind of gave them the, the parameters of where the search area was, and they looked, and they looked, and they looked, and they finally got to the point where they're like, you're messing with us, there's no gift card out here, like we, you, you got to be pulling my leg, there's just not a gift card, and so finally, I think one of the, it occurred to one of the parents that had been listening in, how much I emphasized that the thing that they were looking for was right here in this book, and so they're all over the park, and then finally, I could tell, I could see a little conference, like side conference with a parent and one of their kids, and they're like, hey, go look in the book, and so sure enough, they come over, they, they turn the Bible to that very place where it says, seek the Lord, those who seek the Lord will find him with all their heart, and there's a gift card right there in the Bible, and uh, here they were, they were all over the park looking, and I share that illustration with you today because as I've continued to uh, just pastor people and, and walk with people and, and live among people, I continue to see that very same trend play out, and that the people are just looking everywhere for something. They're just looking for that thing that they know that they, they need the most. And I think that for all of us, even those that understand something about this book and understand something about a relationship with Jesus, we so often tear off in the wrong direction looking for the thing that we need the most. And that thing that we're looking for is a relationship with Jesus. That thing that we're looking for is that prize, that treasure. And though we look for it in so many different places, whether it be in an earthly relationship, some relationship that we're in, whether, whether it be in a, you know, finding purpose in our work or success in that, or I could just go on down through the list. You could, you, could, you could name maybe what it is in your life that you have a propensity to be drawn to and really to look for fulfillment and wholeness in. But we all know that as much as we look for fulfillment in those things, we still have that empty feeling inside of us that something is missing. And at times we might even look at God and be like, are you sure you've even hidden it here? Like, are you sure there's even purpose here upon the earth? 
And meanwhile, we continue to, in a somewhat futile way, continue to search and long and hunt for it. Meanwhile, God's saying to us, look in the book. The answer is in the book, and the answer is in the person of Jesus. The great thinker Blaise Pascal one time said, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the human uh, heart of each, man, of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by, the God, by God the creator made known through Jesus Christ. And that is really the essence of this series. If you don't listen to anything else I say today, it's that. I want you to hear and understand this reality that Jesus isn't, isn't just the means to the treasure. He is the treasure. And discipleship is taking hold of this great treasure, this, this incredible treasure that can't be found anywhere else. Last week, Stephen set up our series and he really outlined one of the greatest problems uh, of our time. And Dallas Willard, many years ago, he, he identified and understood that this same problem existed, and he referred to it as non-discipleship. And here's what he had to say about it. He said, non-discipleship is the elephant in the church. It is not the many moral failures, financial abuses, or amazing general similarity between Christians and non-Christians. These are only effects of the underlying problem. The fundamental negative reality among Christian believers today is the is the failure to be constantly learning how to live their lives in the kingdom among us. And it is an accepted reality. And if we want to truly experience God's greatest treasure in Jesus, it requires us to, as Stephen talked about last week, be more than just converts of Christianity. And in many ways, we emphasize conversion, right, which is a good thing. Conversion to Christianity is an important thing. It is a really, really good thing, but is not the end of the journey. And it really... And, and what, what we talked about last week and we'll continue to talk about today is it requires us, if we want to take hold of this great treasure, it requires us to be disciples of Jesus. Jesus didn't say, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He said, also said, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. And we often leave that teaching them to obey part off, right? And so we sort of, we call people to it, but we never help them and equip them and empower them to live the way of Jesus. And so we have tried to create a culture here um, that actually helps people take hold of this treasure of Jesus, that calls people beyond conversion and into a life of discipleship. So I'm just going to spend a little bit of time here talking about, and I, I tried to whittle it down, but I got five points today. So I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to read a lot of this and stay close to the notes because otherwise it, it could take a whole lot longer. So I'm going to stay close to the notes. All God's people said, amen. And uh, okay, we'll do what we can here. But here's five marks of those who follow Jesus who have said yes to his invitation to come and follow him. And the first is this, that followers immerse themselves in the way of Christ. Followers immerse themselves in the way of Christ. Many of you guys this week have sent kids back to school, and it's one of my favorite times of the year is getting to see all these kids grow up and these pictures of them, you know, on their first day, and like, it's, a, it's just, it's really, really a cool thing. There's a lot of excitement around the front end of school, and we went this past week to Aiden's open house and got to meet his teachers, and he actually has two teachers. He's part of something called uh, the Spanish Immersion Program, which has been a really, really cool uh, program. So last year, he started this program, and the idea of it is that he's going to be fluent in Spanish by the time he's like out of grade school. And it's like really, really uh, just a different kind of thing. And we're, we've really enjoyed it last year. And basically what happens is, so he spends half of his day kind of with one teacher, Mrs. Lonneman, and he's kind of working through two subjects of the day there, English and another 
class, I forget, but um, he's doing that. And then the second half of the day, he spends with Senor Garcia, who lives in Spain, from Spain, and he learns Spanish. He learns the subjects of math and science in Spanish, and they just talk Spanish in that class. And I'm like, it's, it's like really, really a cool thing. And so um, anyway, he's been doing that, and uh, he's starting that again this year, and he's really been loving it. And, uh, but one of the things that I kind of found interesting was this idea of the Spanish immersion program, because as I think about that idea, that concept almost seems like an oxymoron, right? The immersion program, you know, they can actually like program the immersion of Spanish, like as if we could do that. Now, obviously, this is the best that we can do. Now, Hang with me because I'm going to make a, a parallel here to, I think, the way that we approach discipleship in the church. Now, if I really wanted Aiden to be immersed in Spanish, I'd send him home with Senor Garcia. Like, I'd send him, like, bro, you're going for like six months. You're going to live with this guy. You're going to meet his family. You're going to learn their customs. You're going to learn their culture. I'd send him down to like our church in El Salvador, you know, um, and, uh, and, and let him uh, live down there. And, uh, uh, with those guys and learn the culture and learn the language and this would be true immersion right like and maybe maybe you argue that would be like throwing them in the deep end right but regardless this would be more immersion now um, I think the challenge with the way that we have approached discipleship is that we've attempted to program something that is meant to be immersive We've attempted to do the best job that we can to program something that is truly an immersive experience, and that is this invitation of Jesus to come and follow him. And the problem is that this invitation to follow Jesus is meant to embody every aspect of my life. It's not meant to be compartmental, like I just, that's what I do on Sunday mornings. It's meant to be holistic in the sense that it it involves every aspect of my life, me immersing myself in the way of Jesus. So when Jesus said to his disciples, he gave them this invitation, he said, come and follow me. What he wasn't saying is, hey, I'm going to have a little thing like every weekend, like on Sundays. And if you don't have anything else going on, you guys should come to that. You know, I know that this, but like just come on the weekends and that we'll talk about some spiritual things and that will be what we do. That wasn't what Jesus' invitation meant. He wasn't just saying, hey, let's put together a little study group and get together periodically. We'll talk about the things of God, and then, you know, that'll be all well and good, but I won't see you guys for, you know, uh, a while after that. He wasn't just saying, hey, sign up for my nine-week discipleship course or my confirmation class. This is not how Jesus did discipleship. No, he's saying, come, walk with me, follow me, do life with me, follow in my very footsteps. It was not a programmed thing. It was a very immersive experience. And in fact, he called them to lay down their nets and follow in his very footsteps. Many have compared it to apprenticeship to Jesus, and I think this is actually a pretty good modern way to think about what it looks like to follow that invitation to be a very apprentice of Jesus in your life, to model your life after him, to follow in his very footsteps, to stand with him and be with him and learn from him in every aspect of our life. And what we know about apprenticeship, if you think about any craft or any art or any sport or any music, whatever it is, if you're really talking about apprenticeship, it's an immersive experience. And what it is, is is an intentional effort that leads us to our ultimate goal, which is intimacy with Jesus. So it's an intentional effort to immerse ourselves in the way of Jesus so we can experience intimacy with Jesus. And I could just say it this way, it's not just a program, it's a journey. Followers of Jesus intentionally immerse themselves in the way of Jesus. I love what D.L. Moody one time said. He said, you know, I, I prayed for faith, 
and I thought that someday faith would come down and strike me like lightning. And yeah, I wonder how many of us like approach faith that way. Like I've just been praying for faith. Like I've just been praying that God would kind of flip that switch and I'd just all of a sudden God would come down to strike me like lightning. I would just be all fired up and that's how it would go. Maybe some of you had an experience like that, but here's his experience. He said, but listen, faith did not seem to come. And he goes, one day I, though I read the chapter in, a chapter in Romans. He said, I had up to this time closed my Bible and prayed for faith. He says, I now opened my Bible and began to study, and faith has been growing ever since. And so when he implied intentionality to it, what he saw was this growth began to come, this life change began to come, and so he intentionally immersed himself in the way of Jesus. It's what we saw in the book of Acts that the early followers were doing after Jesus was gone. Here's what they were doing. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. This was a part of who they were. It wasn't just something that they did. And we all must do that very thing, intentionally immerse ourselves in the Bible, which illuminates the path of Jesus. We must readily immerse ourselves in prayer, which drives us near to the heart of Jesus. We must consistently immerse ourselves in biblical community, which challenges and supports us along the journey of following Jesus. And so here's the first question I have for those of you that have that desire or are trying to live this out. What intentional, repeatable patterns do you have in place to immerse yourself in the way of Jesus? What does that look like week to week? What does that look like month to month? Are you taking and applying intentionality to this process of following Jesus? Number two, followers submit to the authority of Christ. Followers submit to the authority of Christ. The mark of a disciple is obedience to his instruction. In fact, no other authority in their life holds greater allegiance. This is their greatest allegiance. Out of any other tie or affiliation they have in their life, allegiance to Jesus becomes before all else. And we see this in the way of the disciple. In fact, when they look at the study of this book and they, they read this book and they study uh, who Jesus was and what he was asking them to do, they don't just see this as some sort of self-help or some guidelines to living a good life or some, you know, some principles that you, you know, may or may not apply to your life. Instead, followers of Jesus see this as the very commands of Jesus. And in John 14, 15 through 17, Jesus says, if you love me, here's, how you, here's what I want you to do. It's simple. Keep my commands. And then he says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. And so while that is simple in terms of the, 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 the response, it's not so easy in practice. And so he's saying, listen, I'm going to give you, I'm going to embed my spirit in your life so that you actually can do the very thing that I'm asking you, which is to live a life of obedience to me. And it's not an easy thing to do, sure, but God is going to continue to give us everything we need if we continue to trust our life to him. John 14, 21 says this, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will, to, I will love them and show myself to them. I read this book recently. It's actually a really fascinating book. It was called Live Not by Lies by Rod Dreyer. And he tells these stories of faithful followers of Jesus living under regimes that were quite hostile to the Christian way of life, the way of Jesus. And he tells this one story that was just incredibly just challenging for me to read and compelling all at the same time uh, and really motivating. He tells the story of this Romanian pastor named Richard Warmbrand. 
And Richard Warmbrand, he was a man who endured some of the most vicious anti-Christian persecution um, that was really under this Stalin regime that had kind of taken uh, hold in uh, Romania. And so these Romanian Stalinists uh, seized control in 1947 and asserted their ideas and, and, you know, in a very aggressive, vicious kind of a way, they attacked and, and tried to snuff out everything that would come against that. And so this pastor was very much committed to and living a life of allegiance to Jesus. And when these ideas and these things that were going on were inconsistent with his way of life, as you can imagine, he continued to speak out against that. He continued to live a life that was resistant. And so he was a, a, a dissident in that particular time frame. And so th- there's a high cost to doing so. And because of that, he, he, he kept his allegiance and he was held captive from 1948 until he was ransomed into exile in 1964. Not everyone was as lucky to have made it through, but his allegiance to Jesus brought levels of torture that most of us couldn't even imagine. And you could read his story. There's actually someone told me today that there's, um, there's some different places where you can kind of dig into some of these stories. But Pastor Warmbrand, he once, after kind of going through all of that, in the middle of that, he wrote these words that I think are haunting a little bit uh, and, and super challenging. And he says there's really two kinds of Christians. There are those who sincerely believe in God, and there are those who just as sincerely believe that they believe. And then he says this, you can tell them apart by their actions in decisive moments. So when the pressure is ratcheted up, when the going gets tough, when then there's hostility to your way of life and really the way of Jesus, how will you respond? And that seems, seems to be that there's coming a time where faithfulness to the way of Jesus won't just be unpopular, but unwelcome and met with great hostility. Wherever you find yourself, whether you're on a college campus or in a specific workplace or whatever it might be, you're going to continue to see that there's hostility to the way of Jesus. And this is when genuine faith surfaces as we continue to take on the way of love in in those settings and in those times, and we continue to live the commands of Jesus out. We continue to be something uniquely different, and we continue to stay committed to those things. That's in those decisive moments and in those decisive settings. That's where the true followers of Jesus will continue to be made known. And so the question I have is, do we still live under the commands and authority of Christ? Are we still doing that? Are we still living under that authority? Is that the greatest allegiance in your life? So followers of Jesus can be identified by their actions in decisive moments. You want to see a true follower of Jesus, look at their actions. Look at how they respond. Look at how they live their lives. Which naturally leads to the next idea that followers grow in the likeness of Christ. Followers grow in the likeness of Christ. John 15, 5 through 8 says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. You will be fruitful. There will be visible evidence of this life, right? Apart from me, he says, you can do nothing. If you do remain in me, you are like a branch, sorry, if you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. So it's demonstrated in the fruit that we bear as we continue to. Now, again, there's not a call to perfection. I know there's still a lot of unsavory fruit in a lot of our lives, but this idea is that we are growing into the likeness of Christ. And we all are in the process of that. 
We're actually in the process of growing in the likeness of Christ or quite the opposite. And I love what C.S. Lewis says. He says that um, every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part that chooses into something a little different from what it was before. And taking your life as a whole, with all your innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly turning this central thing into a heaven creature or into a hellish creature. Either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with itself, or else into one that is in a state of war and hatred with God and with its fellow creatures and itself. To be the one kind of creature is heaven, that is, it is joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, and eternal loneliness. Each of us at each moment is progressing to the one state or the other. And so we have to understand that it is in intimacy with Jesus that we bear the likeness of Christ. Is the closer that we grow in connection with him, that he brings about the fruit. In fact, Jesus is the one who brings about the change in us. God's part is change. Our part is choice. God's part is change. Our part is choice. We make choices that welcome change or do just the opposite, as C.S. Lewis points out. And our ideas, our choices, and tendencies have a powerful way of shaping us over time. That's why Paul instructs the Romans, he says, listen, don't be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by what? By the renewing of your mind. Why? So that then you will be able to discern what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. When we remain in Jesus, we remain in Jesus by doing that very thing, aligning our mind with his mind and our will with his will. And as we do so, we see transformation in a lot of key areas. And I love how Bill Hall simplifies this here. He, see, he talks about six different areas where transformation come about. And I think if we evaluate our lives, we should see transformation happening in these areas. Number one, the transformed mind. And he calls this, he says, this is like, this is believing what Jesus believed. So we transform our mind, we're believing what Jesus believed. Number two, transformed character, living like Jesus lived, that our life starts to look more and more like the life of Jesus. We see, number three, transform relationships that we love like Jesus loved. We see transformed habits that we start to change our everyday habits. We train as Jesus trained. Number five, transformed service. We serve as Jesus served. And lastly, he talks about transformed influence that we start to lead then as Jesus led. So are you experiencing that kind of transformation? Are you seeing yourself grow in those ways in the likeness of Jesus? Number four, followers contribute to the cause of Christ. Followers contribute to the cause of Christ. See, what's happening is that followers are moving from mere spiritual consumption to kingdom production. As they continue to grow in the likeness of Jesus and as they continue to enter into this relationship with Jesus, they, they take on the cause of Jesus and they contribute to the cause of Jesus. Followers are moving, again, from mere spiritual consumption to kingdom production. We've been actually having this conversation a lot at our house because sometimes Jess and I are at wit's end with trying to keep our house clean. I don't know if anybody else has young kids, and that's just like, it just feels like it is an impossible task. Let me look at other people like, how do they keep their house clean? Like, what is the deal? Like, why are we so bad about it? And like, you know, we've been having these conversations about like, hey, guys, look, I know you all under eight years old, but we're a team here, you know, and we need some help from the team, and sometimes the team's working against us, and sometimes the team's just not even helping. And so, you know, we have, we've been having this conversation, and there's one particular member of our team, I won't name his name, but he has very, very curly hair. 
He does the opposite of contribute. He makes more work. Like everywhere there is, there's another job to be had. Like it's just like there's just like you can follow in his footsteps and you're like, man, this everywhere you go, buddy, there is just something else to be cleaned up. And so he'd climb up on the counter now, which is amazing. Like, how do you even get up there? And I'll just look over and he'll be up there playing with one of our little I'm like, no, no, don't do that. And then he'll grab a, a like a, a you know, a cup of something, and I'll be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And he, before I have a chance, it's just like just dump. All cups get dumped. Like if he it's just like that's just what he does with cups, and so there we go. And for whatever reason, like I, I love Legos, but I don't want to have them in my house. Like for what we can't just play with Legos at our house. It's like, hey, nobody, don't dump that whole, and it's all just dump it all out. It's everywhere, and so we've been actually trying to more and more. And I, I understand that this part of this has to do with age, but part of my job as a dad is to ask the right amount of my kids. Now, it's age-related, right? I understand that. But I should ask something of them, right? I want to teach them what it looks like to contribute to the household. Now, why? Why would I want to do that? Number one, because it benefits the household. It, number two, because, side note, it benefits my sanity. Like, I, you know, and that is an important thing, and Jess's sanity. Uh, so it benefits the household. But number two, because it benefits them. To actually contribute, it benefits them. It teaches them useful skills. It teaches them how to not just be consumers in our household, but actually contribute to the household. And it teaches them things, and it unleashes their potential. Now, that might be, seem small, like when putting your dishes away or things like that, but it starts small, and it grows to bigger and bigger things. And I recall this time on the journey of following Jesus when Jesus had to be thinking, like, these guys take a whole lot more than they give to this thing. Like, you guys are following me around. This is great, but I'm doing all the healing, right? I'm doing all the teaching. I'm, the, I'm actually just trying to, like, keep you guys together here, you know? And half the time i got to be looking at, like, thinking in my mind, you know, I'm not saying Jesus thought this, but in my mind I'd be looking at these guys and be like, man, like, I got it wrong. Like, I picked the wrong guys. Like, they're picking fights with each other. They're arguing about who's going to be the greatest. Like, who's going to get to sit next to Jesus? Like, this, the, all of these, they're having these really pet, petty kind of childish things, and I don't think Jesus did it, but if I was him, I'd be like, rolling my, like, guys, are we serious? We just had a message about serving and washing. Like, what are we talking about here? Like, how are we so off base here? And so, but Jesus is still doing all this stuff, and he's just inviting them to watch him, and he's so patient, he's so loving. I don't think I could have done it, but he was. But there was this key moment in Scripture where as Jesus had kind of been carrying the load, he'd been doing everything, at some point he's now inviting them into, like, now you guys are going to do it, all right? And that had to have been frustrating because, again, like, are these the guys? Like, and so anyway, there's this conversation, there's this story that maybe you recall where Jesus is teaching all day long, and as he's doing this, there's just crowds of people coming to like hear him teach. And as he's kind of talking up on this hillside, like something like 5,000 plus people come around, and he's, he's teaching them, and that sermon's kind of like ticking on, and the disciples are looking at it, and it's getting dark, and they're kind of looking at the clock, and they're like, hey, come on, we got to wrap it up, like, these guys got to go home. It's dinner time, you know, and their bellies are grumbling, all, all this. And so here, here they are. They're standing out there, and the disciples come to Jesus. They're like, hey, uh, Jesus, like, send them home. They got to go get dinner. And I love how Jesus replies to them. He just looks at them, and it's finally their turn to contribute. So he just looks at them and says, you give them something to eat. And they're sitting there like, is he serious? Like, is he serious right now? There's, we just said there's 5,000 plus people. Like, you just want me to pull out the Blackstone? We'll, rip some, we'll whip something up here real quick. Like, what, what am I going to do to feed 5,000 people? And so he, he, he picks up on this thought process, and Jesus, here's what Jesus says to them. I said, he says, all right, tell you what. What do you have? What do you have? 
He's asked this simple question, what do you have? And if you know the story, what they came up with was they came up with these five loaves, these two fish. And you hopefully, maybe you know how the story goes, but if you don't, Jesus took those five loaves and that two fish and he fed the entire crowd. And just because it's Jesus, there was leftovers. And the simple question that really prompted and propelled all of that was the simple question of, all right, what do you have? What do you have? You might not feel like you have it all, or you might not feel like you have it all figured out, or you might not feel like you're there yet, whatever there is, right? But the question that Jesus has for you is, what do you have? What do you have? What can you contribute at this stage? Now, again, I know there are seasons and stages in spiritual development where it's expected and even encouraged that you just need to receive. You just need to soak it up. And I want to encourage us to always create a place here where people can just receive from God. But it should alarm us if we never move beyond this point. We will eventually stagnate. We will eventually stall out if we just consume and never contribute to the kingdom mission of Jesus. So perhaps you've heard me say this before, but the simplest definition of a difference maker is one who gives more than they take. Over time, that should be our goal in every setting that we find ourselves in, to just as Jesus modeled for us, give more than we take. And I could go, for sake of time, I can't, but I could go through all kinds of stories. I mean, even just this week of ways that this is happening. So this is not me saying, you know, you're not doing this. This is say, keep doing it. And for maybe some of you are, you need to step in more. You have to kind of work with the Lord on that. But I could tell you all kinds of stories. Just this week, I ran into one of our young moms who was supporting and reaching out to another young mom who's brand new to the area. I, we had another uh, young lady at our church that wants to start a core group for women with a passion for biblical literacy. And, like, I had that conversation. This is all, like, in one day. And then uh, I was part of a time of prayer for a family in our church that was going through a difficult time. Uh, I met several other couples that were ready to start community groups. A few weeks before that, I was part of a spontaneous worship and prayer time at our gym for someone uh, who doesn't go here, uh, but it's a part of our gym, um, is somebody that we love whose family is battling cancer. And I, so I was, got to be a part of all those things. Why do I share all that? Because not one of those things was initiated by somebody that's part of our staff. And that's what the kind of culture that we have here is this culture of initiative, this culture of just so many people and so many of you just walking through the doors for the first time saying, hey, we want to contribute. Like, I don't, we don't know how, but just like, m- let us contribute in some way. And so what does that look like for you? Followers do that. They contribute to the cause of Christ. And lastly, followers commit to the prize of Christ. Philippians 3, 13 through 14 says this, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, I forget what lies behind, and I strain forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Followers of Jesus understand that the path they have chosen it's far from the easiest, but it is the best path. And so they stay the course. They keep their eyes fixed on that prize. And as I think about this, I think about the Olympics, and maybe some of you guys watch the Olympics. And um, there's some things that I watch in the Olympics, and I'm like, I think I could do that, you know, which is totally wrong. But there are other things where I'm like, man, there is absolutely, this is just like such an incredible thing. And some of these runners that go this distance, and as I'm watching on TV, I'm like, that, that doesn't seem so bad. Like, I could, like, you know, but then when you actually know what pace they're running at, it doesn't look like they're going fast because all of them are going that fast. But it's like a, you know, five-minute mile pace for, like, gazillion miles or whatever it is. I know that's an exaggeration. But you're watching, and you're like, man, what keeps, like, as they're just out there on the road with no headphones in, like, what keeps them going? It's 
it's the prize, right? They know what they're running for. They know what they've trained for. And they keep running for that prize, for that moment where they might stand up on that podium and put on that medal and just tears streaming down their eyes, represent their country and see that prize and that moment fulfilled. Now, one of my favorite things they did this year with the Olympics is they would, like, show the families at home, like, watching, you know, because they couldn't be there. And so they're watching from home. And it would be amazing because, like, sometimes these athletes would have it totally together, and then they would see their families. And they would just lose it. Like, they would just have this emotional moment of, like, wow, like, they've been cheering me on the whole way, you know. And here they are to, like, celebrate with me. And it's just an incredible, incredible thing. And I think about our own journey, and I think about the fact that we are on that kind of a journey. But nothing compares to the prize that we have in Christ. Nothing compares to the prize that each awaits each one of us at the end of our race. It's not just a gold medal. It's not just a chance to represent our team, although those are really, really cool things. It's this treasure of finding Jesus and is absolutely worth it all. Though it comes with blood, sweat, and tears, and trials, and all of those things, there is absolutely nothing like it. So we keep lifting our eyes and fixing them on the prize. We keep committing, saying no turning back. And as I think about this, I want to leave you with uh, a scripture that's really cool because it, it demonstrates to us that there are, there, we have a, a big family that is up there watching over us, a family in heaven that is cheering us on is cheering us on. And we might not see him there on the other side of the screen, but they are cheering us on. It's all those that have gone before us. And Hebrews 12, 1 through 3 describes that. He says, listen, therefore, since there are, we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, again, those that have gone before us, those that are part of the family of God. I mean, just imagine this for a second, that, that there are there are just however innumerable number of people, and maybe some of those people are members of your family, maybe some of those people that have lived a legacy of faith and has since gone on, all of those people that are sitting up there, they're saying, keep going, just keep running, keep running. There is a prize at the end of this life, just keep running. And so so since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. And so let me be the first to just say, keep running today. And for some of you, you won't need to start your race. And guess what? We're going down to the river today to celebrate some people that are getting in that race because they understand that there is no better race. And maybe for some of you, as I'm speaking today and you're wrestling with the tension of some of what we've talked about, maybe it's time to re-engage in the race. Maybe you had to take some time and you've just been breathing heavy off to the side and it's time to step back into the race and just one foot in front of the other, get back in the race and just continue to imagine that there is a whole just innumerable amount of heavenly hosts and and heavenly uh, people that are now sitting on the other side just cheering you on and say, keep running that race. And so uh, I want to encourage you, if you need to make that decision today, maybe you weren't prepared to get in the river today, but we're going into the river today, and so maybe today is that very day. When you say, you know what, I've been putting it off for too long, today is the day, I'm making that decision. Just like we sung about before, no turning back, no turning back. So we're going to sing one more time here, and I just want to encourage you to, if you have a decision to make, uh, in, in a moment in your chair, and you want to grab me after, uh, we can talk about that, but We're going to the river today, and we can't wait to celebrate with nine, maybe plus people that are going to be making that decision to follow Jesus. There is no better decision. 
all that we've experienced, the very best of what we've experienced, and this life is only a foretaste of the life to come. Let's go to God in prayer. God, thank you so much for your son, Jesus. There is absolutely no greater treasure. There is no greater prize that any of us could take hold of. And so we know we're not perfect. We know we fall short. We know we need your help, and we could never do this on our own, God. And that is what it's all about. It's about putting our full trust in you. And God, so I just pray for everyone in this room today that you give them exactly what they need. If there's somebody that needs that first breakthrough of you just breaking into their life, into their heart, and inviting them on the journey, God, I pray that that would happen. I pray if somebody needs to recommit their life to the way of Jesus today in their own way, in their own place, I pray, God, that you would allow that to happen, God. Whatever it is, God, we just thank you that it's made possible because of who you are. God, again, we thank you for this book. We love this book because it introduces us to the person that changes absolutely everything, the person of Jesus. We pray in his name.